This week on Keeping Faith. It was one epiphany, January 6th. I got up early and just went out alone in the in the dark, just as dawn was coming. And just on my flexible flyer sled, just went down that hill and just felt so at peace and so alive. And after you came down that main hill, if you got a little momentum, you went down another hill. And that went into a dark, old-growth oak maple forest. And that was mystery. And to get there alone at dawn on you know an icy, snowy January 6th morning was just so breathtaking and so moving. When Stephen Sharper saw his childhood nature area bulldoze to make way for a new rec center, he felt a spark alight within him. It was a deep understanding that the health of the natural world is a direct reflection of the health of our societies, and that in order to save one, we have to fight for the health of both. And this belief has driven his curiosity to uncover more about the cosmic connection between us and the natural world in every aspect of his life. Stephen and I talk about his lifelong fascination with nature and his adventure-filled childhood among the forests, creeks, and toboggan hills of suburban Connecticut. He reflects on the memory of Richard Nixon visiting that rec center, as the moment he realized we have to fight for what we value and fueled his commitment to the social justice movements of the 1980s and 90s. And he shares his belief that we need to find joy in the hard work of social change because without it, we're missing a key part of the cosmic experience. Because how do you make a difference and make sure you're not running on empty? This is his story. I'm Maren Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. And Stephen Sharper spoke to us from Anishinaabe Algonquin and Huron-Wendat territory at the Canadian Ecology Centre in Mattawa, Ontario. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com slash about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native Center or Council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life right now that's connected you to your sense of faith or hope? Mm, Great question. Well, I have to say politically, south of the border, the Beginning of the end of the Trump administration (laughs) is giving me a lot of hope. Um, And also what gives me hope in looking there is the quiet integrity and determination of so many people who believe in their democracy and are doing the work of democracy, despite the rage from, you know, that particular sector that is trying to undercut the validity of their electoral process. So that gives me great hope. Also, that words like love and taking care of each other are coming from a president-elect and how people need to reach out to each other 
and talk about love and support. To hear that at that level is something we haven't heard for a long time. And that is giving me hope. Yeah. Also, I'm finding that my students who are all over the world, <laughs> they're in their home countries, many of them stuck with family members in other parts of the world, they're still able to generate community and creativity in the midst of COVID. So this is giving me tremendous hope. And to see how they reflect on this experience, artistically, poetically. I have a graduate seminar on ecological worldviews. And we begin by doing a reading and they provide a one-page reflection. But I say, you know, after the first or second class, if there's another expression of this reading that you want to submit, that's great. Some of your artists, oh, you can't believe what has been coming out. Original songs, performances, poetry, artwork, drawings, painting, and a first last week. I, I had them look at The Peach Orchard, which is a segment in Akira Kurosawa's Dreams film, and about a little boy and a peach orchard. Well, one of the students came with special eye makeup. And because it's Zoom, I'm not really keying into this. And one of the other students said, what's up with the eye makeup? She said, well, that's my project. And so she, when she closed her eyes, oh, she opened her eyes, it was this kind of stark scene of the peach orchard destroyed. When she closed her eyes, there were the peach blossom colors and the sparkles. And that was the boy's dream of seeing the orchard again in bloom. And wow. the remarkable creativity amidst these stressful times and all the disruptions that COVID has caused has just been uplifting. And uh, yeah, that's given me hope. But also this idea that we saw just a glimpse of what could happen if we slowed down our consumerism, mm -hmm. that initial lockdown phase. And you recall all of the reports of porpoises in parts of Portugal that had never appeared before. The NPR reporter Sylvia Pajoli reporting that for the first time, you could hear birdsong in downtown Rome. It was almost too loud. And in Toronto, around the campus at the University of Toronto, incredible birdsong because you didn't have that white noise of a consumer economy on full throttle. And I remember doing an Earth Day reflection for a friend of mine who's a minister at a United Church, Alexa Gilmore, for Earth Day, and just talking about this opportunity to listen and to hear the bird song. And really the first time in 50 years since Earth Day had been established that we had that kind of attempt to hear this. And we had a glimpse of cleaner air, more abundant wildlife, and a kind of quiet where the voices of nature and other than human voices were audible. And my students reflect on this. They remember this. And that's for them a sign of hope because they see the power of nature. This is something that has a pulsating, mysterious energy that none of us will ever fully understand. Yeah, that sentiment about um, the slowing down is something that I've heard from so many people and so many people remarking on how they notice detail in their life in ways they just glossed over before yeah. even even walking in the neighborhood that they you know live in every day when it was the commute to the subway you didn't notice 
the tree you passed or this person's garden or what was happening on the sidewalk boulevard and just the time to slow down and observe the detail of life, I think, Mm -hmm. has been a really big blessing. Yes, exactly. And that's so key to mindfulness and being present in a particular moment and noticing where you are and being attentive to that. And this has given people an opportunity to do that. And I was talking to one friend who said she now realizes the frenetic pace her weekends would move at. And a lot of it involves shopping. And she just doesn't have the heart for it anymore. Once that stopped, and as you say, realize the details of the moments in her family, in her neighborhood, in her life, she just isn't inclined to go back to that previous frenzy of what she was doing on the weekend. And that taste is hopeful. That taste of another world and that another world is possible. Not to gainsay the horrors that people are going through in terms of loss of life and suffering, but the notion that we don't have to go back to business as usual, that actually we have a choice here, a real good choice to make a difference. And frankly, I don't think we would have a change of government in the United States were it not for COVID. I think this has contributed to an interest in a new kind of leadership. Yeah, it's very interesting how sometimes we need these cycles of destruction in some ways, whatever way that comes into force in the world in order to have the the rebirth of a system or the reimagining of a system. And you mean, you've, you've already brought up talking about nature. I mean, that exists as a fundamental force in nature so many ways mm-hmm. too. And it makes sense that we're a part of that as well. Exactly. And, you know, you look at fire and the role of fire in forest regeneration, etc. And the red pine, those cones need that heat to open up and other species do as well. And many indigenous communities understood that with their controlled burns and how that helps replenish the forest and provide diversity in the forest from the oak savanna to other areas. So there is a sense of a kind of creative power that can be destructive and life-giving in the same breath, in a sense. And so this is part of the warp and woof of the human story, the more than human story, uh, the flow of life on the planet, I think. And so we're invited to kind of really think about alternatives now. And what's interesting, too, is the parallels between COVID and climate change and how in both cases you have a certain segment that is denying the scientific evidence that is trying to help bring wellness. And in both cases, you have an understanding that the business as usual approach is not appropriate anymore. In a sense, we have to really fundamentally rethink our healthcare system, but also our whole economic and political system that is destroying the earth through the greenhouse gas emissions and the destruction of species. That kind of economy is not going to take us into the future. Mm-hmm. in any way that we want to be. And there's a realization of that. And COVID and climate change together are, in a sense, joining hands to nudge the human family into saying, you've got to change. It's a double whammy diagnostic moment. And you can't shut out your scientific voices and you can't shut out the voices of women or the voices of youth activists or the sounds of the birds that are in distress, mm-hmm. etc. That 
this is a unified oral experience of a new diagnostic moment. So like any crisis, a crossroads, there's a choice. But people are seeing the choice now. And they've had a taste through lockdown of a different sound and sweetness of being attentive to their lives and the sounds of nature and the fluorescence of nature that they had not been able to experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about imagining the future um, kind of post-COVID and moving on, but let's just move back in history a little bit for a moment. You know, you've already mentioned so much about nature and, and also the spiritual sense of nature. So I'm curious as to where that comes from for you in your life. And what were you, what was your life like growing up? What were you taught about the world and what were you taught about faith and hope as a part of that? That's a fascinating question. And when I think about what I was taught, I think of not just schooling, but kind of mentoring and mentoring from elders. And a big influence on my early life was my grandmother on my mother's side, who had survived World War I, the first pandemic, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War. And she was still joyous, mirthful, and open to life in all its fullness. Mm. And she was the family historian, so I learned about my family history. But she was a deeply faithful woman. She was uh, a devout Catholic, and she had converted to Catholicism when she got married and really embraced uh, the mystery of the Catholic faith and had this incredible spirit. And she, she always instilled in me, always trust the spirit. Mm. trust in the spirit and also never underestimate the power of positive thinking and of prayer. And this was not baloney. I mean, she had been through a lot and she was not a wealthy woman and the depression was very hard. And yet I heard from family members, etc. when anyone came to her house, she fed them and welcomed them in and kind of ran in a boarding house during the depression and people were never turned away. And she was a welcoming spirit to her dying day. Mm -hmm. So she taught me about trusting in the spirit and the power of positive vibrations and of prayer. I mean, she was a deeply prayerful person. But that that goes hand in hand with joy. That goes hand in hand with mirth. That goes hand in hand with having a good time. And she would like to cut up, you know, just have the banter <laughs> of fun. And she was great at that. And when I think now about who taught me, she was a great teacher for me in terms of resilience, joy, faith, and steadfast commitment to life itself. So yeah. great mentor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you remember as a, as a young person what you took from that? What was the experience of being with a person in your life so full of so much life like that? I think it was reassuring. I think I had a sense of calm, a sense mm. of peace. And she never felt alone in the universe. You know, she never experienced, as far as I could see, that kind of anomi or alienation that can be so commonplace because she trusted in the spirit. And when things were rough, she said, place your trust in the spirit. Mm. It will be okay. If you deviate from that, that's when you get into trouble. So with her, I had a sense that 
no matter what happens, if you trust in the Spirit and keep a positive attitude, you will get through this. And you're not alone, that you're tying in with cosmic energies. And for me, I saw that in nature. I saw that kind of energy and buoyancy when I walked in nature and spent time in nature. And her daughter, my mother, was also a big influence because my mom always talked about the power of the divine in nature. Hmm. And she read these works by Tired de Chardin, Pierre Tired de Chardin, and she reviewed them for a newspaper when they were coming out. You know, Tired de Chardin's work had been basically banned while he was alive, like the work, the phenomenon of man, the divine milieu, his more theological reflections. He was a scientist and paleontologist, but his theological work was coming out posthumously. And she would always talk about Deschardins. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't hear this as a little kid, right? Uh, so I'm thinking, Dapper Dan, a dashing through. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and the scarf and Deschardins dashing through. But anyway, <laughs> she would talk about tired Deschardins. She would just talk about the spirit at work in nature. So my grandmother's emphasis on trusting the spirit dovetailed with my mother's emphasis on the spirit at work in nature. And her interest in always having us go outside, always being outside, never worrying about us going off into the woods, camping on our own. She encouraged that and just really celebrated our being outside. She would make sure we would get to places to swim and go to beautiful uh, parks and forests and have the run of the neighborhood where there were still a lot of farms and rural spaces to climb trees and frolic in mud and mire and streams and come back completely muddy, but that wouldn't phase her. That was, that was all about it. So that was also a big influence on me. Just there was not that separation between my faith in the divine energy and having a great time outside and just mucking around with friends. Yeah. What was crazy was going into a church or going into a school where this was kind of separated from yourself, and it, it felt carceral. So school often felt like prison for us. When you wanted to be outside, you knew that's where the energy was. That was where it was happening. And outdoor education was not a thing, at least in my experience. So you just couldn't wait to get out. Yeah. And... <laughs> and just be outside and just experience it and spend time there. And to me, that was following the spirit. That was trusting the spirit at some unarticulated level. That was a good place to be, both in terms of my embryonic faith and also my family direction. That was the place to be. And I remember the stars, like I just going out alone late at night and there was a field across the way and I would just lie in that field and look at the stars, not knowing any of the cancellations, not knowing anything about the cosmos scientifically, but just reveling in that beauty and just feeling so in awe. And that feeling of awe and amazement always was so reassuring to me and uplifting in a, a way I couldn't articulate and still can't really. But it was very centering and awe-inspiring and beautiful all at the same time. So those were all part of the childhood experiences of nature, the cosmos, and somehow the spirit that I was learning about in formal religious education was present there. 
Yeah. I think the place that we live imprints on us in some ways when we're young. The landscape that we're, you know, brought up in becomes a part of us. And it's so vivid for you in, in talking about this. Could you talk a little bit about the the landscape you were a part of growing up? Where where was it and what was it like and what did it teach you or what did it leave its what was the imprint it left on you? Yeah, thank you. I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut and you know, kind of a an area just outside of New York City. And for a while, my dad would take the train into New York. So it had a suburban commuter dimension, but it also had its own industry and its own history. And we were in the northern part of Stanford that was still not totally suburbanized. And so across the way was a 100-acre farm, the Caddy's Farm. Down the street was a dairy farm. And when I first remember being there. There was woods all around. Um, There were fields, there were ponds, there were streams. And so this was just idyllic for me growing up. But as I got older, development began to encroach upon these spaces. And I remember being very hurt and upset, very distraught when some of these places were being developed into housing. And for me, it led to a kind of distrust of what people thought was a good thing. Like, this is going to be good for the local economy. Because for us as kids, we we just thought this was a horrible intrusion on wild space. So a pond that we would play ice hockey on and go fishing and catch frogs in, they bulldozed that and, you know, put a tennis court over it. And this was such an incredible loss. I mean, there were muskrat in that pond, and now it's a paved over tennis court. And this amazing Toboggan Hill, like it was huge, which, you know, if I had to describe a spiritual experience as a child, I mean, I probably had one on that hill and it was one epiphany, January 6th. I got up early and just went out alone in the, in the dark, just as dawn was coming. And just on my flexible flyer sled, just went down that hill and just felt so at peace and so alive. And after you came down that main hill, if you got a little momentum, you went down another hill. And that went into a dark, old-growth oak maple forest. And that was mystery. And to get there alone at dawn on you know an icy, snowy January 6th morning was just so breathtaking and so moving. Mm-hmm. And I found as a kid just going out and walking in the woods. I remember one time, there were six kids in our, my family, and I was the youngest of six. And I remember one time we were all cleaning the basement. It was a family activity. And I found in the basement this old space helmet, you know, that kind of had a shield over the eyes. So I put it on and I just went out. And I thought, this is great because I can walk in the woods and I'm not going to get eyewitness <laughs> by all the branches because I had my special <laughs> space age visor on. And it was just automatic. I just went into the woods with this helmet and just felt so at home and so at peace and so wondrous just walking alone in the woods as a five-year-old, six-year-old. So my area around where I lived had those woods, had those creeks, those rivers, those fields, the trees where you could climb. And I mean, we did all. We often talk about how we're still alive. I mean, this is like the crazy things that you would. I remember in the front of our house, we had these two fir trees, and they must have been 60, 70 feet tall, huge. 
And my brother and I, age 10 and 9, decided we're going to climb these things. So he helps me up because it was hard to get to the first branch. He somehow gets up. And we get to the top. And I'm looking at him kind of struggling. And the wind's blowing. And we're going like this on top. I mean, the view was amazing. But I'm thinking, any slip, gone. Like, we are dead. It's a 70-foot drop from here. But there we were, hanging on. I see my brother across the way, hanging on in the wind. And it was just so exhilarating. Frightening, but absolutely stupefying. And so exhilarating and exciting. Yeah. So I think that was another dimension. So you had this fear and excitement all bound up in the same experience in these wondrous places. And so this, for me, was just absolute ecstasy. Not that I could articulate it that way, but in retrospect, these were ecstatic moments. And, you know, Tom Bisberry, the cultural historian, talks about the need to have those ecstatic experiences in nature. And if we don't find them in the natural world, we'll seek them elsewhere through extreme behavior, drugs, etc. But for us as kids, at least for my friends, this was a type of ecstasy in the excitement uh, and challenging yourself and each other against these life and death moments in a sense that uh, really brought out something of you and tapped into something that was very powerful and wondrous. Yeah, it reminds me so much. There's a yogi named J.P. Sears, and he talks about how the words sacred and scared are so similar. You just flip one letter and and how there's an element of whenever we approach something sacred of a little bit of fear, a little bit of intimidation, and that that's inherently a part of our experience of sacredness or divine. And I hear a little bit of that in, in what you're reflecting on yes, here as well. Absolutely. And, you know, when you read in scriptures about the fear of God, you know, I mean, this is an awesome majesty, but it's powerful and it's scary at one level. And I remember uh, when we got older, a bunch of guys, like we were in our teens, and we were out one night looking at the stars, and um, one of the guys gets up and just starts running out of the field. Now, it might have been because I was telling UFO stories, <laughs> but I like to think he had that existential experience of the fear of God. Like, it's just, oh my gosh, this vastness is too much for me. I'm getting out Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can always interpret stories the way we want. Yeah. So from this place of, you know, in almost some ways being raised partially by nature as well, what what did you take with you from that as you kind of grew up and moved out into the world on your own? Well, I think one thing I took from this was a sense that one can always return to this area if it's still there. But one has to kind of fight for it mm. if it's jeopardized. And I remember when this field, uh, beautiful fields, this farm had been sold and this recreation uh, center came and they started doing these kinds of bulldozing techniques. It was quite upsetting for us. Um, and we <laughs> we engaged in certain um, justifiable eco-terrorism or eco-monkey eco, eco wrenching <laughs> as a, not, nothing on a major scale, but we felt justified because they were destroying this beautiful area. But the capstone was when this place opened and President Richard Nixon came to dedicate. Mm. And this was in the middle of the Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam War. And my older sisters and brothers were protesting this. And that was so fitting because this was such a diseased place in my view. And it was fitting that such a diseased president was coming to honor that, that this all fit. And so what I took from this was... 
that the destroyed landscapes physically and naturally reflect diseased landscapes politically and culturally. Hmm. And this all merged. And for me, I realized that they're inseparable. The cultural landscape that you're imbibing will lead to the physical landscape that you're shaping. And I had a powerful, distressing experience once. Um, I was at that center and they had destroyed a beautiful part of the hill and they put in these big swimming pools and they had a snack bar and it was blaring this pretty disgusting song about teenage sexuality. And I'm thinking that music is going across a sacred field in my view, you know, and it was this music that didn't appreciate the profound beauty of sexuality, which I was just trying to learn about. And it was broadcasting it over this beautiful woodland and field that had been so sacred to us as kids. Mm -hmm. And that's when this kind of connectivity between the cultural landscape and the physical landscape came together for me. And it was, uh, it was distressing. Yeah. And, you know, um, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, who's a mathematical cosmologist, have worked together on projects. And they have the line, diseased landscapes are the product of diseased mindscapes. And so that was in a very incipient way beginning to form in my mind at that point. And so what I took away in part was the cultural environment is as important as the physical environment. These are mutually interpenetrating and one deeply affects the other. And so unless you really kind of immerse yourself in healthy waters, literally and culturally, a huge destructive power can be unleashed. Uh, so that was something that I just had glimmerings of coming out of that experience there. But, you know, also the power of nature to kind of come back mm. was something we saw too, because areas that had been neglected all of a sudden started having tree growth and, you know, verdancy coming back, started seeing animals come back when certain areas were left alone. And this was hopeful. And so you always saw that kind of resurging mysterious power of nature, even in areas that had been destroyed. When they got neglected by those who had developed them, they came back. So that was also something I gleaned from that. Again, trusting in the spirit and trusting in the energy and the power of the earth and of nature. And that that's divine energy. It's not simply natural systems. That's reflective. You know, as my mom was trying to articulate by reflecting on the works of Tyre de Chardin, that this is the work of the spirit in the cosmos. And that life is part of that spiritual energy. It's not divorced from divine energy. It's an expression of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious as well, you mentioned Nixon, you mentioned the protest culture of the, you know, 60s and 70s. Was that something that you then became a part of or pursued? Because, you know, the environment and the civil rights movement were so interconnected as well. So I'm curious how, how that was a part of your life, too. Yes. Um, you know, my family was quite involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I was very enamored of Dr. Martin Luther King, as, of course, millions were. And my dad was involved in 
publishing and social activism from a religious perspective. So he was co-chairman of something called Clergy and Laity Concerned About Vietnam. And these were Jewish and Christian and perhaps other faiths represented. I know about the Jewish and Christian. And they were very concerned from a religious perspective of what was happening in Vietnam. And so that kind of reflection was part of our DNA. And in fact, you know, my father um, worked with Martin Luther King for about a year, meeting with him and other members of this coalition to have him reflect on Vietnam and if he were to come out against Vietnam. And the night that he came out at Riverside Church against Vietnam, my dad introduced him. And after the speech, my dad turned to him and said, Martin, I can tell you what the New York Times editorial is going to say tomorrow. When it comes to (laughs) civil rights, Martin Luther King is the moral leader of our nation. But when he equates civil rights with the Vietnam War, he's just a dupe of communist expression and infiltration. He saw it. But one thing that King did, and it was something my dad, oh, you know, my dad always had a picture of him till he died on his office wall, is he never looked back. I mean, he had a lot of opposition to this from his own men or his own support staff and his own advisors. But once he did it, he just kept going. He never looked back. And he became so prophetic. He said, today we're in the streets about Vietnam. Tomorrow it's going to be about American imperialism in South Africa and in Guatemala. I mean, he kind of saw the 80s and what was happening in El Salvador, Guatemala, etc., and the South African anti-apartheid movement. He saw that coming, and he knew that's where the Christian voice had to be. And so this was all part of my upbringing. And I remember seeing war on the news every night. I mean, this you hear this from people of my generation, but it was absolutely true. And I had a fantasy one time that I would be able to go on television as a newscaster and say, the war is over. <laughs> We're not going to see bodies here anymore. We're not going to see children being burned and American soldiers dying and seeing this disaster because it had such an impact. And, you know, my brother, older, oldest brother was, he had a draft card and we weren't sure if he would be drafted. So he wasn't, but it was nearing that moment where he could have been. And so it was going to be touching home as well in terms of our family. And so, first of all, the role of religion and faith groups in opposing these movements was something that I was very attracted to. And the whole role of social justice being expressed through religious transformation was something that was very important to me. And then my dad founded a publishing house called Orbis Books in Marinol, New York. And the focus was liberation theology of Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And the spiritual experience of the so-called nations of the South being made available to people worldwide. So that kind of liberative thought began to uh, kind of course through my veins. And, you know, I always loved nature and was very interested in environmental protection, etc. And remember the first Earth Day with great gladness. Uh, because I remember uh, in uh, one of the parks, the city parks, on the first Earth Day, all these environmental groups had booths. And it was the first time I saw, and I was like 12 years old, but I saw all these groups And it was amazing because the people had an energy. There were organic farmers and there were craftspeople and there were environmental youth who were doing neat stuff. And you'd go to their little stands and learn about it. But I noticed that consistently they had a glow, an energy, a life force, a vibrancy, a winsome vibe Mm. that was really 
compelling and very attractive. It's like, I want to be part of that energy. Mm. And I had not seen that before in such a clustering. So that, that always was, you know, part of what I thought was important in life, um, protecting these beautiful spaces and, and relating to them, but also interested in social justice and North South issues and issues of racial justice. So these were also part of what I was interested in exploring and trying to do that through a faith filled lens was part of my um, high school and early university experience. And so, interestingly, when I went to university, the solidarity movement with people of El Salvador, with Guatemala, it was very big. Archbishop Oscar Romero was killed in my second year, 1980, when he was assassinated while saying this, and this was such a blow because he had been such a, a beacon for justice in that very unjust situation. And this kind of urgency of addressing, you know, after the Reagan uh, victory in 1980, this turn toward a rapacious, greed-filled, and illegal assault on people in Latin America just came to the fore. And so this was a very difficult and troubling time. And so protest after protest, letters, you know, activities, writings, speaking, publishing, all of this was going on. And it was a constant pull from other things that you were doing. You know, and it was Reagan, Reagan, Bush. You know, there was 12 years of this. And I often would joke uh, with my wife, you know, it was after Bush's defeat when Clinton was elected, I was finally able to finish my PhD <laughs> because I wasn't spending all this time fighting. <laughs> and But this, the psychic level, you know, and we've experienced this under the four years of the Trump administration. And we're experiencing now, even though he's lost, he hasn't given up the ghost and he's still like a zombie coming at this and trying to steal an election. Um, so what I found when I was um, working in um, my master's, I was looking at Gustavo Gutierrez from Latin America, his notion of liberation, socio-political economic liberation, liberation of history, and sense bringing people who are agents of history who've been sidelined to the fore, and then spiritual liberation, whatever breaks our friendship between ourselves and the divine. So this was all kind of matrix. And I was, you know, very interested in that and worked um, in publishing at Orbis Books and other places um, and then became um, exposed when I moved to 23rd Publications in my mid-20s to the work of Thomas Berry, mm. a cultural historian. He was, I like to say he was the Yoda to Al Gore's Luke Skywalker. You know? <laughs> he kind of was like Yoda. He talked like this. You know, and he was a big influence on Al Gore and Al Gore twice had him to the Clinton White House to advise Clinton. Um, along with the Dalai Lama on environmental issues, et cetera. But his work was so captivating because it, it brought me up to date with the Tyre de Chardin thinking that my mom had kind of brought to us and he took Tyre's thought into a new realm. And so my first assignment was working on a book, Reflections on His Work from Other Scholars. And so I would be going into New York to hear him speak. He was such a great guy. Uh, so humble, and he became a real strong mentor for mine, of mine. So I became interested in the liberation theology that takes poverty and injustice deeply seriously, and the new cosmology of Thomas Berry, which takes the universe and the earth as primary and ourselves as secondary, and how to put these together. And I thought, you know, I, I left publishing to do my PhD at McGill, and I thought I was going to do something on the role of publishers as agents of social change. And 
I was asked by a newspaper at the time, the Catholic New Times, which was a progressive Catholic newspaper, to interview Brian Swim because he was giving the inaugural lecture at the Elliott Allen Institute for Theology and Ecology at St. Mike's. And I was in Montreal, so I was having this phone conversation with Brian Swim, who's an ecstatic guy. I mean, you meet him, he's like, wow, look at what I just saw. (laughs) Can you believe what the... Anyway, very exuberant, wonderful man. But uh, we're having this conversation, and it gets on to the role of the human. What is the role of the human at this time? On the one hand, we have this extraordinary power to bring in the anthropocentric era. But on the other hand, we're totally dependent on biological and earthly systems. Mm-hmm. What is our place amidst this Scylla and Charybdis of power and vulnerability? And so, you know, I get off the phone and I'm talking to Hillary, my wife, and she said, look at you. That's what you should do your PhD on. Mm. So right then and there it changed. And I looked at the role of the human and Christian ecological literature, but looked at the Gaia theory, ecofeminism, process thought, new cosmology, liberation theology, etc. I I think what you're saying is just resonating with me so much. And I, I'm curious, you know, you are a professor, and I'm just curious about how you bring this together for generations who, on the one hand, are becoming more and more disillusioned with traditional religious communities um, who are stepping away from faith traditions and who also feel jaded about their future, who see, you know, and are really feeling the depth of the climate crisis before us and don't know how to approach planning a life as a result of that. How do you how do you interweave all of these different aspects in your work and and how do you offer that to to you know this generation that's a great question and it's one that one works with and moves with every day that one teaches but i learned early in my work in environmental studies that the doom and gloom <laughs> profit of gloom approach only goes so far Articles would begin, here's how we're destroying the earth. You know, here's some analysis. And there's a little bit of hope here that it's just tacked on. It's like, that's not going to cut it. And that's, that's irresponsible. So part of it was, let us get a fuller perspective here. Mm. We often highly tout the destructive dimensions. And no doubt, these are destructive and important things. Too. But they're getting that in stereo 24-7. What about their experience? Where do they enter into this? What have they seen in their lives? Getting them outside having them experience these things directly. So in my classes, and this began with the 500 students in the intro to environmental studies, the first week was not a written assignment or reading assignment. Mm. It was a disconnecting and reconnecting exercise. So the invitation was to see if you could disconnect from computer-mediated communications for up to 24 hours and to record your feelings, what you did, the vibrations you felt, and then spend three hours in that week connecting to nature as you understood it. And the re- and I still do this in my classes, and the responses are fascinating. And originally, when I started this, you'd have more of the response, like as one student said, after 20 minutes of turning my cell phone off, I was shaking, like I was going through withdrawal, 20 minutes. <laughs> and one student saying, after like five hours, people were ready to call hospitals because I was not responding. Right. And then others are saying, I went 36 hours. I loved it. I started talking to friends. I was spending time outside. I was listening to the birds. One one student after class came running to me and said, 
squirrels. Like I didn't know we had squirrels in Queens Park in Toronto. And then he had then gone back and taken pictures of them in videos that he was showing. So what we were talking about earlier, being attentive to the moment in the early lockdown of COVID, they had a mini experience of that. But secondly, I say to them at the opening, you know, this is a special moment. You know, we're in a special time. There are no prefabricated answers here. You are part of this conversation. And I said, so you can look at this class as simply a check mark in your march toward your degree or an invitation to engage meaningfully in this moment because we need your ideas. We need your creativity. No one of us here who teach you on these platforms know the answers. None of us individually does, but collectively we will find ways out of this. And that's why we need kind of all hands and hearts and minds on deck. So this is a collective enterprise. And a second thing that really I've learned over the years, I've always included an immersion dimension as an option. So students can do often 10 hours of immersion work with a vol- you know, as volunteers with an environmental organization slash sustainability social justice group. And that has been, to me, very empowering because these students see groups and individuals who know the score and yet are still building community, not giving up, still having joy, still moving in a positive direction. And it gives them hope because they're involved in something that is responding creatively to this moment. And then they become part of it. And I think that helps cut despair, ennui, enemy, and despondency. So that has been absolutely beautiful to see. It um it strikes me a bit that it sounds like it's almost inviting the spirit you talked about your grandmother having into like the learning dimension, that gregarious participation in the world around you. That that's a little bit of what I hear in how you approach teaching as well. Absolutely. And there's gotta be joy in this, right? So there has to be people who know the score and yet do not go around with their chins on the ground you know that there's still life here and we still have to celebrate that and this is part of our teaching it's part of our environmental work it's part of our outreach part of our social justice work but i think if the if the students can see a place for play Mm. and a place for as you say you know celebratory conviviality while not being silly and foolish i mean taking these things seriously but also understanding the kind of flow of life and that we have to continue to find the joy and celebratory power of the universe because that's part of the story. And land restoration is part of the story. And species that are coming back, that's part of the story. And if we leave those stories out, we're not really being committed to the truth. And I don't think we're doing a service to our young people. And I find that now there is much more receptivity to these ideas, particularly in terms of religion and ecology. Climate change is no longer something out there, you know, happening in the Maldives or in Tuvalu. It's happening here with flooded basements and wildfires in the West, et cetera. People are experiencing, people are having to leave their homes. So it's not just somewhere else in nations of the South. Secondly, people are psychically battered. They need spiritual fulfillment they need spiritual selves they need to connect spiritually with something that is life-giving and they know that they can't just ignore that spiritual part of their being and this whole birth of well-being and you know living well to be and vivir movement of latin america ecuador uh, etc 
and Bolivia and indigenous lifeways is having a parallel with well-being here. And we realize more and more that we're not going to be healthy. You can't have healthy people on a sick planet, again, as Tom Perry would say. And they're not going to be well people on an unwell planet. And that's the whole spectrum, physical, psychological, personal. So there's more receptivity to approaching these issues in a full spectrum way, including the spiritual connectivity. Also, when you talk to people about amazing experiences in nature, they become so eloquent and passionate. And then they see the connection to some of the worldviews that are addressing, whether it be an indigenous worldview, or many of my students come from uh, South Asia, so it could be Hindu uh, or an Islamic worldview. They're seeing the parallels with that awe and wonder they experienced in nature as children. Mm. And now they can connect it to some of the spiritual traditions that they were brought up in and are reflecting on. So even while some of them are, of course, questioning their faith backgrounds, they're looking for meaning in those traditions as well. Mm -hmm. And unless our faith institutions and our governmental institutions reflect the values of these young people, they're not going to want to be part of those. And so it's a strong invitation to the religious communities, the governmental communities, to adopt these values, because this is what gives life and gives transformation. And people have to see a reflection of their values in their institutions. Otherwise, those institutions will die. They, I often think, you know, you know, I come from a Catholic background and there's been so many sad developments in the Roman Catholic Church um, over the last few decades, attacking progressive theologians, attacking women theologians, attacking nuns who are doing environmental work, let alone the horrors of pedophilia scandals and the cover-ups. But it's almost like young people are going to the churches and saying, do you have any water? I'm thirsty. Oh, no, we don't have water. But if you want to lie in front of the monstrance, you know, like you can do that or, you know, you can kind of, but I, I need water. I'm thirsty. Oh, I'm sorry. But if you come in and, and have what we have, they, they're not coming in. Mm-hmm. They're dying of thirst. And these communities aren't giving these people what they need to live. So they're not going to come in. <laughs> and this is again, part of getting real and really loving people and loving people whom you're here to serve. You have to listen to them. What do they need? Not what I think they need, not what I was told to give them. What do they need? And I think I'm always challenged to, to listen. What, what are the spiritual needs? What are the psychic needs? What are the physical needs of our young people, of all of our people? And how can we respond institutionally, personally, culturally, politically to those those needs? And that's going to change. It's going to change with each generation. But what are their values and how are those values being reflected in the institutions we represent? And it can be very alienating if there's no reflection of those values in the larger institutions that someone is a part of. I'm curious then... What would you say, or do you have any advice from your own experience with also challenging institutions and challenging ways of thinking for people in my generation or or younger who are trying to figure out a way to 
either work within the system they're in or trying to figure out the more revolutionary act of starting something new, how can they approach this when it feels really overwhelming sometimes to even know where to start and and to have their voice heard? Great question. And of course, it will vary from context to context, person to person to a certain extent. But, you know, from my own experience, I've learned in certain cases, I can go so far with an institution. If I'm working for a particular publishing house or a particular department or particular university, how far can you go before it becomes self-defeating? So knowing that, you don't know, okay, this is not a perfect situation, but we can make advances toward the goals that we think are important. Mm -hmm. And strategically, thoughtfully, prayerfully advancing those goals. But knowing when you've hit the wall Mm. and knowing that, okay, that's as far as I can go with this company. That's as far as I can go with this NGO. That's as far as I can go with this initiative. I've done what I could. It's time now to move on. Mm. So understanding when you've reached the limit. And one of the indicators that you've reached that limit is you find yourself complaining <laughs> to coworkers, to, you know, people you live with. I'm like, okay, you, you might have hit that wall now. It's like, that's not positive energy, mm-hmm. you know, and then, then it becomes internalized. And then you become a little twisted yourself because you're involved in the negative energy. Secondly, following the positive energy. Mm-hmm. This is key. You know, one thing that, you know, people say, oh, what did you, what did you think you knew? Or what would you have liked to have known? as a 20-year-old. And I think one piece of advice I think I would have benefited from is what gives you joy? What gives you energy? Think of your life. Think of what you're doing through a day and have a little joy meter or energy meter. Okay. If you're sitting in a library going through Latin text and you're not happy, that may not be what's giving you joy and energy. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're talking to people like you and you're engaged in ideas and you're interested in building something together, okay, register that. Because if you choose a path that that's going to be your life way, that energy is important. That's going to sustain you. It's going to help you. Mm -hmm. And another thing I wish perhaps I had heard as a 20-year-old or even a a 30-year-old is don't let an institution define your life or your being. Mm -hmm. Don't let the restrictions of an institution define who you are. You are much more than an institution can define you as. You're much more than that. And following and trusting who you are. And thirdly, having tender, loving care for yourself. Hmm. This is not narcissism. This is caretaking of the utmost importance. Because in watering yourself, you're able to water and cultivate others. But if you, in the name of altruism and noble thoughts, stress yourself and scratch your inner core, you're going to be inhibited in helping others. And you won't be there for the long term. And I'm sure you've heard this many times, but it does remind me of being in an airplane and looking at that little safety card. And the event of a pressure change, a parent puts the mask on themselves first Mm. and then to the child. Because if you're unconscious, your child may die. You have to take care of yourself first with the oxygen mask so the child will live. Same here. Mm. You put the oxygen mask on yourself first. That's not a narcissistic act. It's actually a loving act for yourself and for the people you're taking care of. So this is another um, invitation to millennials to, and they're doing, I mean, 
amazing thing. Like, I'm just amazed at my former students, what they're doing. And so bowled over with their creativity and their resilience and their vision and their fun, you know, um, trust that. Mm. What, what gives you energy? Where can you find a joyful way of making a difference? A celebratory way of transforming the world in a positive way. Because those are going to be mutually enhancing. The energy you give and the energy you get. You know you're in the zone. You're in the groove when that's moving well. And as I get older, I learn to trust the kind of vibrations I get from people. I may not see all their resumes, but I know I can trust this person. And trusting that to a certain extent, I think is important and honoring that I'm connecting with this person. I think I can trust them. This is a teammate that I want to build something with, mm-hmm. not simply because they're with this institution or they have this credential that often can be much less important. But is this someone that we are going to share positive energy and a unified constructive vision together and not stumble over small, small fry items? That, to me, has been essential in team building. Mm. And trusting that has become very important to me. So I think those are some things that, um, (laughs) with my gray hairs, I might toss out if they have any merit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think that's that's really beautiful. And especially that that last point is also a, a reminder of trusting your own knowing trusting, Mm -hmm. trusting that sense within, um, which I think is so important. Yeah. Mm, I agree. agree. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. So one, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself. And three, as something that you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of this definition to you as a question. So... For you, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to in your life? I think I feel a duty to be the best person I can be in the sense to fire on all cylinders in my life. Hmm. That I can't go on, if I'm a six-cylinder person, I can't just limp around on four cylinders and think that's enough. I have a duty to my wife, my son, my students, myself, and the creator to try and fire on all cylinders. In other words, a duty to constantly try to be the best person I can be in a way that's loving and respectful of myself, not through self-flagellation and early morning stripping down of one's psyche, but in a loving, compassionate, but motivational way, commit myself to being the best I can be. And that's, that's a commitment that has a wide spectrum Yeah. And what do you believe in or trust that is greater than yourself? So many things. (laughs) So many things greater than myself. You know, in 12-step programs, the language of higher power is used, and it's used elastically. So, 
for people who are not theistic, they don't believe in God, the higher power might be their community. Uh, the higher power might be nature. The higher power might be the love they feel from friends. But for me, this notion that there is a spirit at work in the universe that does not come from human hands, and that that is an energy that is oriented toward life, and I believe toward right relationship. As Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But the universe is also lined with joy, celebration, energy, and life-giving properties. And that is the energy that I want to be connected to. And that, I think, gives life. I think that kind of connectivity to that energy helps us be more alive and more vital and more loving. Because I ultimately believe that the universe was born in love Hmm. and that part of its flourishing is a loving relationality. And that's one of its graces. And ultimately, we are meant to be in loving relationship. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And to me, the heart of this question really is that I I think that we all have something at the core of us that we feel or know to be true, even if it doesn't make logical sense. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because during COVID, we have run a classic film club. And this is every Wednesday night. We used to do this, you know, occasionally at the universities for environmental studies students and some students who had graduated our programs. And we get together at the Robarts Library Theater once every six weeks. But in COVID, they said, okay, let's do this every week. <laughs> and last night, we showed Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 version, you know, with Natalie Wood and Maureen O'Hara. And of course, it has a definition of faith. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Is that Mm. particular film's definition of faith, I should say. And part of this is that um, knowing that certain things don't make sense, but they happen anyway. They're not common and they're not sensical, but they happen anyway. And so for me, one thing I know is that there's a mystery to life and the universe that we will never crack. We will never sleuth out. We will never comprehend, manage, or control. That I am certain of, of that mystery. Mm -hmm. And I think that mystery for myself has divine origins and has a kind of mystical dimension that makes it endearing, inscrutable, fear-inducing, and yet greatly, greatly appealing. Because there's something always beyond us. We are not masters of the universe. We are not you know, control commanders of creation. We have no idea of the vastness and the mystery of the place we live. And I'm certain of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's an interesting sense of comfort and joy in the mystery as well. Absolutely. Because we don't have to control it. We don't have to manage it. We don't have to arrange the chairs for it. We don't have to order the food. In this mystery, there is something else at work. And we're just, we're part of that. And I think part of the joy and serenity 
that we feel there is that, wow, we're all in this together. Like this is an interconnected mystery that none of us stands outside that mystery. Even if we don't necessarily acknowledge it, we are part of it. So we're not alienated in that. In fact, we're a part of it. We belong. All of us mysteriously belong and are deeply connected. And that can give a lot of assurance. We do not fly solo in the universe. Mm-hmm. I love the way you put that. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> um, so do you have a, a spiritual practice that could be something that you do on a regular basis, like weekly, monthly, yearly, but something that you come back to regularly that connects you with your sense of faith or hope? Mm-hmm. Thank you for the question. Yes, there, there are a few practices that... I've engaged in. And one is, uh, this has become very powerful, particularly during COVID, is spending time in nature. And that's a, a deliberate exercise. So whether walking for an, a half an hour to an hour in nature every day. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, that has brought me, since I was in Toronto, to the waterfront. Mm. And I became acquainted with Lake Ontario after many years of living in Toronto. And as a friend said, you know, Toronto seemed to have turned its back on Lake Ontario. But through COVID, I have connected with Lake Ontario. It's early in the morning, one could go down to the waterfront. There weren't many people, say, you know, at Queen's Quay or Ashbridge's Bay and walk along that beautiful waterfront and see the sunrise and experience the beauty of that, of that great body of water that we have not respected. But that connection to nature has been so important for me in terms of getting a perspective and thinking of long-term solutions, realities, hopes during this difficult time. A second practice has been meditation, but not necessarily full-blown hour-long meditations. I mean, I even find that if I just do a minute or two minute meditation at certain moments and just try to be mindful of where I am and my breathing, that can be very salutary and very centering. And I'm not a master meditator at all. I am pretty much of a clod, but even just one or two minutes can begin to make a difference. So that is a very important part of my spiritual practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's... That's great. And you can find Stephen's Breathing with Nature practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to him guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Stephen Sharper is an associate professor at the Department of Anthropology and the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto. He is the author of several books on theology and ecology, including a new edition of the Green Bible released in November. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our joyous music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. They really do help spread the word about the show. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. 
Next week, for the last episode of this season, we're bringing you a Keeping Faith holiday special. We'll be joined by guests from episodes past who share how they're navigating the challenges of a holiday season like no other. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Maren Smith. See you next week.